It was G.K. Chesterton who said, hope is hoping when everything seems hopeless. For when everything seems hopeless, it's only then that hope becomes strength. Today we begin a four-part sermon series entitled Advent. The word Advent literally means coming. Most of the time it describes the coming of a significant person of influence. In Christian circles, Advent always points to the coming of Christ. We know that Jesus was born some 2,000 years ago. After he was raised from the dead and ascended to the heavens, the angels gave a promise that he would come again in like manner. So literally, you and I have the awesome privilege of living between the Advents. We live between the first and second coming of Christ. And whether you lived thousands of years ago before the first Advent, or whether you live in these days anticipating the promised Advent to come, fundamental to Advent is hope. It's hoping when everything seems hopeless. It's in that realm of hopelessness that, that, that hope becomes a strength. For us, we understand that hope has a name. It's with that in mind that I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. Once you found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. John chapter 1, I'll begin at verse 1, I'll conclude at verse 18. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all men might believe. Now he himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light, the true light that gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testifies concerning him, who cries out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we've all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. 
John's Christmas story is a wee bit unconventional. There's no mention of shepherds in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night. There's no reference to the city of Bethlehem. There's not one word spoken about a star, a stable, or an overpopulated inn. Nothing is spoken of Mary or Joseph or the wise men who travel from the east bearing gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But John's Christmas story is nonetheless fundamental to our understanding of Advent. John tells us some important things about the Christmas story. John tells us tremendous things about this one who was to come to bring Christmas. You realize that all four Gospels have a unique origin. It is Mark who begins his Gospel telling when Jesus was approximately 30 years of age at the baptism by his cousin John there on the banks of the Jordan River signifying the beginning of his public ministry. It's Luke who begins his gospel some three decades earlier by interweaving the birth narratives of Jesus and John the Baptist. And Matthew? Well, he predates the other two by some 2,000 years, for he traces the line and lineage of Jesus all the way back to Father Abraham. But John? John surpasses them all. He simply says, in the beginning. His Christmas story starts in the beginning. Now, John is an interesting character. He is one of the sons of Zebedee. He is the beloved disciple. He is the author of five New Testament books, the gospel that bears his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. This gospel that bears the name John is probably the fourth and final gospel that was written in chronological order. John wrote his gospel about 80 A.D., His purpose is very evangelistic. In fact, his purpose statement is given in John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Out of all the gospels, John is strictly evangelistic. He writes this gospel tract so that you, as the reader, may believe that Jesus really is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in his name. John writes this gospel by simply telling us that God's plan A of salvation, and I say it's plan A because there ain't no plan B. God only has one mechanism, one way, one path, one route for anyone to be saved, that this God-side salvation is tied to Genesis 1-1. When you hear that phrase in the beginning, In John's prologue, your mind automatically races back to Genesis 1-1. The very first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. When John pens his story and says, in the beginning was the word, your mind races back, predates Genesis 1-1. And you say, okay, this is the very beginning of everything. And John wants you to know that the salvation that God gives to you had its origin in 
the beginning. In the beginning was the Word. The Greek word that's translated word is logos. The Stoics believed that logos was the rational principle through which everything exists. It was Philo who said that logos is the ideal man. Literally, the word logos means word or expression. In the Hebrew mindset, the word of God always carried with it creative power and salvific deliverance. Let me give you just a couple of examples. In Psalm 33, the author simply tells us that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. The heavens were made simply by the word of the Lord. It has creative power embedded in it. But also there is salvific deliverance. In a place like Psalm 107, we are told that he sent forth his word and he healed them. The word heal can also be understood as saved. He sent forth his word, he being God. God sent forth his word and the people were healed. The people were saved. They were delivered. So in the Hebrew mindset, this idea of word, logos of God, it always carries a connotation of creative power, of salvific deliverance. But the question before us is who is this word? You read the 18 verses and you quickly come to this conclusion that this logos is not just a philosophical principle. This logos is not just some pie-in-the-sky teaching. This logos is not just some idea, but logos is a person. So who is this logos? In the scripture text, there seems to me some, some, some very uh, clear Christological clues as to the identity of this logos. I want to give you five words this morning. These five words seem to uh, describe some characteristics of the logos. And, and the first word is simply co-eternal. That the logos, whoever he is, he is co-eternal. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. You jump down to a later sentence. He was with God in the beginning. On two occasions, John wants us to know this logos is with God. With God in the beginning. So since the Logos was with God in the beginning, he must be co-eternal. He must have always existed, for we know that God has always existed. Remember Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. God predates everything. In the beginning, God. Here, in the beginning, Logos. Logos was with God. He was with God in the beginning. So this Logos, whoever he is, he must be co-eternal. But the second word I would give you is co-equal. For he was God. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. This word is, is co-equal with God. Co-eternal with God. That this logos is made of the same stuff as God. Because it says that he was God. God. 
You and I don't need to make the same mistake as the fourth century theologian Arius. Arius really became a heretic. When he wrote of Lagos, there was a time when he was not. All you got to do is read John 1, the first few verses, and you know that the Lagos has always existed. He's co-eternal. He's co-equal God. Also, you don't want to make the same mistake as present-day Jehovah's Witnesses. If you read their version of John's prologue, they will come to that sentence where it says, He was God, and they'll insert a one-lettered word, A. He was a God. Now, if you press a Jehovah's Witness, and if you ask them why is the A inserted there, And if the Jehovah's Witness is up on his Greek New Testament and the language of Greek, he would accurately tell you that in the Greek language, the first letter of the alphabet, alpha, does not work the same way that we have in A. Because we can insert A just about anywhere. But the Greeks never inserted alpha anywhere. So any place in your English translation where you see the word A, it is an insertion by the interpreter. Now, up until now, that Jehovah's Witness is exactly right. Because in the Greek language, the Greeks did not use the alpha the same way that you and I use the letter A as a word as a, uh, to, to define and describe uh, something. So, so it, it just can be inserted. However, I would tell you that any time an A is inserted, it's inserted there for a reason not to contradict theology, not to create brand new theology, not to just be inserted wherever somebody wants to insert an A. If you insert an A in John chapter 1, right there at the very beginning, then you really mess up the whole idea of Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So that A is misplaced because John is not telling you that the Logos is a God. He's not saying that the Logos is a creation of God, another God, a lesser God, different than God, merely like God. No, he's saying that Logos is God. And don't get confused by him saying the Logos was God as if it was in past tense and now he's not. No, what he was, he is, and he forever will be. That's the way John writes it. So this Logos was God. He is God. He will forever be God. He is co-eternal and he's co-equal God. I like what D.A. Carson wrote in his commentary when he said, we understand That the Lagos does not have the entire Godhead. For we know that God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, The Trinity is stamped in the Scripture. And we see that Trinity, uh, Trinitarian selfie, uh, numerous times, several times in the sacred text. But D.A. Carson went on to write that even though that the Lagos is not the entirety of the Godhead, The entire deity of the Godhead does dwell fully in the Lagos. So what he's saying is that the full deity of God fully rests 
in this Lagos. It's not that somehow the Lagos is less divine or less godly or less like God. No, all of God fully, all of his divinity fully rests and belongs in the Lagos. How do you know that? Because in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It is tempting for people in our day, for people 2,000 years ago, to make less of Jesus. And how do people make less of Jesus? They deny his deity. They diminish his deity. They demote his supremacy. And whenever you begin to do that, whenever you fall prey to that temptation of diminishing the deity of Jesus, then it's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because throughout the scripture, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We are of the same stuff. We're of the same essence. I learned several years ago that uh, instead of making less of Jesus, I need to focus my attention on making much of Jesus. I can't make too much of Jesus. I can't think about him too much. I can't worship him too much. I can't talk to him too much. Can't talk about him too much. Can't love him too much. Can't serve him too much. Can't study him too much. Can't give to him too much. I can't make too much of Jesus. Any thought that I have, any thought that you have that's absent of Jesus is a void thought because you're wasting your opportunity to think something about Jesus. And every time we think much about Jesus, we realize we can't think too much about Jesus. We can't make too much about Jesus because Jesus is in a class all by himself. Remember what our friend the Apostle Paul said in Philippians. He said that God gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this Jesus, this Lagos is co-eternal and he's co-equal. I'll give you a third word. He is creator for by him all things were made John says without him nothing that has been made could have been made John will be echoed by Paul the apostle for Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 he being Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. By him, through him, all things are made. He is the image of the invisible God. The exact stamp, the exact representation of God Almighty. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn. That doesn't mean born first. It just means he's first in priority and rank. He's the firstborn over all creation. And by him... All things are made, Paul will write. Then it's also echoed by the author of the Hebrew letter, that New Testament letter that we call Hebrews. The author simply says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son, through whom the universe was made. Did you catch that? This one, this Lagos, this son, the Lord Jesus himself, he is creator because through him the entire universe was made. Everything seen and unseen, visible and invisible. Everything big and small, everything tall and short. Everything has been made through him. He is creator. 
This logos, he is co-eternal, he's co-equal, he is creator. I'll give you a fourth word. He is colossal. I know it's not in the text, but how else do you describe these next sentences? In him was life. And that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness cannot understand it. Can you think of a better word than colossal? I mean, what John is describing is something monumental. This logos is a life giver. In him is life. Everything that has life finds its origin in the logos. He gives life. And that life is the light of men. Oh, I can imagine that John is being reminded of what the prophet Isaiah said. That those groping in darkness have now seen a great light. That God turned on the light switch. That when the Lagos came into the world, light came into darkness. It was so brilliant. It was so light that... The world could not even comprehend it, could not even understand it. So thus far, John has given us tremendous clues as to the identity of this Logos. He says the Logos is co-eternal, co-equal. This one is creator and colossal. Let me give you the fifth and final word. And just because I got to it quickly, don't think that the sermon's now over. But the fifth and final, the ultimate word that John gives us to describe this Lagos is that he is Christ. You say, Pastor, that word Christ didn't show up till verse 17. You just got through the first five verses. You're right. Because John is going to spend verses 6 to 18 and even beyond to talk about the greatness of Christ. So if it's okay with you, I thought I'd spend the remainder of my time just talking about the greatness of Christ. Because this Lagos, he is Christ. In verse 6, the author introduces us to a man named John. This John is not the same John who wrote this fourth gospel. No, the author John is referring to John the Baptist. In verse 6, John the Baptist appears. Now, John the Baptist is a quacky cat. I mean, he's strange in every way of the word. His wardrobe is funky. His diet is weird. But his purpose is clear. He came as a witness to give testimony to the light. He came to give testimony to the one who would come after him, which actually is the one who predates him. For before John was, there was Jesus. And so he comes just to point people to Jesus. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And John the Baptist came to give witness, to give testimony to the light. For in verse 9, we are given John's Christmas story in one sacred sentence. In verse 9, he simply says, The light that gives light to every man has now come into the world. God turned on the light. God sent, he sent Christ into the world. 
And this is Christmas, isn't it? This is what we celebrate as Christmas because God stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth, was born in a Bethlehem barn, and there we declare that Christ was born. And John just simply says, the light which gives light to every man had come. That's Christmas for John. But then verse 10, but the world, the world that was made through him did not recognize him. Now, friends, that is a slap in the face of God Almighty. God, through his son, the Lord Jesus, made everything. And Jesus stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. And the world that was made by him did not recognize him. They rejected him as the light. By and large, the world still rejects Jesus as the light. That's a slap in the face. Or it is the height or depth of stupidity. That's just stupid, isn't it? For the light, the author of, of, of creation to come into the world and for the world not to receive him but to reject him. But then verse 12, yet to all of us who received him, who believed upon his name, he's given us the right to be called children of God. Friends, let me just camp out there just for a second. Uh, you can only do two things with Jesus. You can either reject him or you can receive him, but you cannot ignore him. There are only two things you can do with him. Either you reject him or you receive him. By and large, the world has rejected Jesus as the light, as the sole savior of the universe. But not everybody has rejected him. Can I get an amen? There are some of us, there are many of us, and we've received him. How do you receive him? By believing upon his name. When you believe upon his name, he then gives you the right to be called a child of God. I hear people erroneously say from time to time, all of humanity, we're all just children of God. Biblically, that's incorrect. We are all creations of God. But only those who receive him, who believe upon his name, are given the right to be called children of God. Only God's people, only Jesus' people, only those who follow Jesus as Savior and Lord, only we are the children of God, according to the Scripture. All of humanity is a creation of God, but only those who receive him are children of God. Now, how do we receive him? By believing upon his name. That's the way you receive him. By believing upon his name. Name in the New Testament, literally throughout the Bible, name uh, communicates essence, a character. So we've got to believe upon the essence and character and activity of Jesus. We've got to believe who he is and what he did. We've got to believe his identity and we've got to believe his activity. Jesus never suffered from an identity crisis. He knew precisely who he was and why he had come. For Jesus is God in the flesh. He came so that you might be saved. 
Jesus came. He lived a perfect life. He died on a criminal's cross as a substitutionary death for your sins and for mine. And though he was slain and his body placed into a borrowed grave, on the third day, the dead man began to breathe again. Jesus got up. He rose victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He is victorious over your sin. Jesus came to seek and to save you. And if you believe upon his identity and his activity, you'll be saved. The word belief and the word faith, they're synonyms in the New Testament. It's by faith that an enemy of God becomes a child of God. It's by faith that those who are dead in Christ, unable to lift a finger under their own salvation, are unable to walk in newness of life. It is by faith that Broken people become blessed people. It's by faith that shattered people become saved people. It is by faith that those who are messed up become fixed up in Christ. It is all by faith. John says in our verse 12, Yet all who received him, who believe upon his name, he gave the right to be called children of God. Now, this fits in nicely with John's purpose statement. I've already referenced it once. I'll reference it again. It's John chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written about this Jesus so that you may believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. John says, I I have written all of these things to be a convincing case of evidence upon evidence upon evidence that Jesus really is Christ. He really is the Son of God. John says, I wrote this to convince you. I wrote this to convince you because in moments of hopelessness, all you have is hope in Jesus. That that it's in moments of hopelessness when everything looks topsy-turvy, turned upside down and inside out, it's only then that you can reach out and you'll find the strength in Christ. I want you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Christ. So these things have been written so that you may know that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What are these things that John wrote? We've gone over this before, but I think it bears repeating. That these things are written specifically, intentionally, to give you evidence, to shut the case. So that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is Christ. So in John chapter 1, this Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In John chapter 2, this Jesus turns water into wine at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, signifying the beginning of his public ministry. In John chapter 3, this Jesus tells Nicodemus how to be saved. In John chapter 4, this Jesus, who's an equal opportunity savior, has a roadside conversation with a Samaritan woman at a well, and he tells her how to be saved. And before she could drop her bucket and even kick the bucket, she accepted Jesus Christ and went back into town and told everybody there how to be saved. In John chapter 5, Jesus heals an invalid of some 38 years. In John chapter 6, this Jesus feeds 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fish. In John chapter 7, this Jesus promises, if you believe in me, streams of living water will well up inside of you. In John chapter 8, 
This Jesus gives grace to a woman caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 9, this Jesus heals a man born blind. In John chapter 10, this Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I am the gate. In John chapter 11, this Jesus raises his BFF Lazarus from the dead. He says, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man comes hopping out of the grave. In John chapter 12, this Jesus rides triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem for the very last time of his life. In John chapter 13, this Jesus washes the dirty, smelly feet of his disciples before Passover meal. In John chapter 14, this Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John chapter 15, this Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. In John chapter 16, this Jesus promises the gift of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 17, this Jesus prays for himself, his disciples, and for all believers. That's you and that's me. In John chapter 18, this Jesus is arrested. In John chapter 19, this Jesus is crucified. In John chapter 20, this Jesus is raised from the the dead. And in John chapter 21, this Jesus reinstates a wayward apostle named Peter. These things are written about this Jesus so that you may believe he is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing you too may have life in his name. <clears throat> to all who received him. What does it mean to receive? To believe upon his name. He gave the right to be called children of God. I don't know about you, but I am just so glad that the Lagos loves lost people. The greatest human need is lostness. And the only remedy for the greatest human need is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christ. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word, the Lagos, became flesh and tabernacled with us. He set up shop, not a cameo appearance, not here today, gone tomorrow, but he came and lived with us. He rubbed shoulders with us. He ate with us, drank with us, walked the streets with us. He came and tabernacled and dwelled with us. The word became flesh. It's St. Augustine who says of the incarnation, it is God who sank himself down into our flesh. That this Christ put on flesh. That he put on the frailty of our humanity. He put on our sorrows. He robed himself with our pain. He draped over himself all of our disabilities he put skin on he stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth it's God in our bod he came and dwelt among us friends it is only Christianity who tells us that God came to us every other world religion gives you suggestions and instructions on how you might get to God. And God said, that's not going to work. The only way for you to be lifted up is for me to be brought low. So Christianity is the only world religion that testifies that God came to us. He stooped down low to raise us high. He came to us and the salvation that he gives is given by grace, not works. There is no other world religion 
that teaches that salvation from God is given by his grace. Every other world religion says, this is what you must do in order to be saved. Only Christianity says, this is what's been done so you may be saved. Because God stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth and he came to seek and to save you. He died on a criminal's cross so that you may be uh, brought back to life, so that you may be saved. And it is only Christianity that teaches that God came to us and the salvation in his hands is a gift. It is by grace that you have been saved. Now certainly we've been saved to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But those good works are not a means of salvation. They're gratitude for our salvation. Just as a way for us to say, thank you, God, for seeking and saving a wretch, a worm like me. Thank you for saving me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen the glory of God by seeing the one and only from God. John tells us that the law was given and etched in stone was the law. But etched in flesh was grace and truth. Jesus is the perfect personification of grace and truth. i got to confess to you this morning that this is a tightrope that I don't know that I always walk correctly. The proper balance between grace and truth. I don't know very many Christians that really do it well, just to be honest with you. So I'm indicting not just myself, but all of y'all as well. Because sometimes we err on one side or the other. We err on the side of too much grace with no truth. And when we have so much grace and no truth, we become tolerant and anything goes. Oh, but then we try to self-correct. And we err on the side of truth with no grace. And we choke on our own pharisaical arrogance. Because we know the truth, we know the doctrine, but we have no grace. To accompany it but in Jesus who is the Christ we have perfect grace and truth in him is etched that perfection of grace and truth we come to verse 17 and finally we're given his name the one and only is Jesus Christ now John's been talking about him the whole time John's gonna keep on talking about him for 21 chapters it's all about Jesus Christ. But you know that Christ is not the last name of Jesus as if he was born to Mr. and Mrs. Christ. No, Christ is not his name. Christ is his identity. It's who he is. It communicates what he does. He is Christ. It's the word that means he's the anointed one. He's the Messiah. Friends, he's our hope. Our hope has a name. His name Jesus the Christ. I've told you before, I'll probably tell you again, the greatest single theological statement you can make is Jesus Christ. When you say that two-word phrase, you are saying a mouthful because you are declaring that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Logos of God. He's co-eternal. He's co-equal. He's creator. He's colossal. He is Christ. John just simply says that because of him, we have one blessing after another. That phrase, one blessing after another, literally is grace upon grace. 
Because of Jesus, we have grace upon grace. You can't get to the depths of it. You can't reach the heights of it. You can't put your arms around it. Once you think you've got a hold of grace, what does God do? He showers you with more grace. It's grace upon grace. It's wave upon wave. Friends, our only hope is Jesus. And in Jesus, we have the perfect personification of grace and truth. I think that G.K. Chesterton was onto something. Hope is hoping when everything seems hopeless. That it's when everything is hopeless, that's when hope becomes a strength. Our hope is not in money, our hope is not in the government. Our hope is not in military might. Our hope is not in power and popularity and prestige. The only hope we have is Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Friend, I'm telling you today that hope Hope has a name. He is the Logos of God. He is co-eternal. He's co-equal. He is uh, the creator. He is colossal. He is Christ, the Logos of God. The only hope that you have, only hope that I have, is Jesus the Christ. So this morning I wonder, have you had your salvific reception? Have you received him? Say, how do I receive him? By believing upon his name. Believing upon who he said he is and believing what he did, he did for you by dying on the cross, being buried in your tomb and being raised on the third day. Friend, if if you've never received him, today can be the day of your reception. Today can be the day that you receive him as Christ. Maybe you're here and you, you had that glorious reception years ago. Oh, but there are people in your family, aren't there? There are some friends and coworkers, aren't there? And they're counted among the world who have rejected him. Because all you can do is either reject him or receive him. But you know some people, people that you love, people that you care about, people that you treasure, people that you value, and they have rejected him so far. And you're going to be with some of those scallywags over the next few weeks. You're going to be around the table with them, aren't you? You're going to be rubbing shoulders with them. You're going to have the opportunity to be like the Logos, the Word of God in your flesh. You're going to have the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus. And those who have rejected him up until now, they just might receive him. I wonder, is there anybody in your life who needs to receive Jesus? And maybe God's going to use you. And that scares you to death. And so today, you want to come and pray and say, God, strengthen me. Because I don't know if I'm up to it. And God's going to tell you you're up to it because I'm going to help you. Because when you feel hopeless, your only hope is Jesus. 
Can I ask you this real quickly as I close? Has there been any moment over the last few days, weeks, months, or years where you've looked at the surroundings of this world and you've said it's hopeless? It's hopeless. I mean, look. The pandemic, the politics, the the struggles, the strife, the wars, the battles, the canceling of our culture. Look all around. It's hopeless. Have you ever looked around over the last few days, weeks, months, or years said it's hopeless? Yeah. I have too. And then I came to John chapter 1. And you know what the Lord reminded me? It's never hopeless. Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. And he makes all the difference in this world and the one to come. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. Lord, we give you this invitation, this moment of uh, reception where those who have never accepted you as Savior and Lord, never made it public, today can be the day of their public reception of you as Savior and Lord. Lord, give them strength in this moment. As soon as the first note is struck, for them to come down this aisle, take a minister by the hand, and say, I need to receive by faith this Jesus. Lord, there are many people here, they're believers, but today you brought to the forefront of their mind a a friend, a loved one who is far from you. Lord, today, let them come and pray for that person by name here at the altar. Lord, may your altar be full. Call out the called. Draw people to yourself. Have families join the church. Lord, have sin be confessed. Have lifestyle be turned from. Lord, help us to turn towards you. Lord, today, let us receive you by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.